Father, and I pray for me, for us, that you would uh, quiet our souls, but uh, enliven our minds, and we might hear from you. Father, I pray the expectation be that you really would speak to us, um, that we really would hear from you, that our lives really would change uh, in a way that causes us to be more like Christ, enables us to have deeper, more mature faith in you, enables us to live out uh, our calling as believers in Christ. So I pray, Father, that you would do all that, equip us to uh, eat from the table that's before us as well, even as we hear uh, this, this word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Joshua in chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6, please. I want to begin reading with verse 12. Joshua chapter 6. As you're finding that, just a very quick word. Uh, As you know, we sing during our communion time uh, in this last couple of years. So um, take note of that. I just... I just uh, announced that in one of our songs, Before the Throne of God Above, is missing the first verse. But that's okay, because you know it anyway. But just don't, don't let that throw you. Just keep singing uh, as you come. Joshua chapter 6 and verse 12. Hear the word of God. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually, and the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp, so they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times, and at the seventh time When the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her uh, in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen and sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. And you know the situation here. We read this last week. It's a common, well-known event that took place in Old Testament history. Uh, we know there was a fortified city named Jericho. Uh, the Israelites had come into the land. That city was to be theirs. Um, and they were to, to enter it by way of taking a six-day walk once around the city each day. Um, the armed men went first, then the priests with the trumpets blowing continually on the rock. Uh, then the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord's box that represented for them the presence and the promises and the power of God, and then the people following behind that. And you know, for six days they walked around once each day. On the seventh day they walked around seven times. At the end of their seventh trip around, uh, the trumpets blew again, the people shouted, the walls fell down. That was the strategy, that was the event, and that was certainly the outcome. And they went in, saved Rahab, and everything else in terms of people and animals were destroyed. The city was burned. They took uh, the metal, the silver, gold, and so forth into the treasury, or would be for the treasury of the Lord. People say pictures are worth a thousand words. I think that's why I like the Old Testament so much, um, uh, because I see pictures, I see events take place. And not only is that an illustration of various aspects of the character of God, here we see his power, we see his faithfulness as he gives the land to the people that he's promised all the way back to the days of Abraham. Uh, we see his, his power, his faithfulness. Uh, we see judgment. We also see his grace and mercy in the life of Rahab. Uh, we see those as, as pictures for us. Uh, 
And I think sometimes as I read through the Old Testament, what I'm seeing happening in, in real life, physical, material world is, is a picture of what I can't see but does go on in the spiritual realm. These kinds of walls fall in the spiritual realm and, 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 and save people and bring judgment and, and all of that. And so as I've been looking at Joshua, you know, I've been seeing various pictures with you. For instance, as we considered Rahab, uh, I began to think she's like us. Now, it's not very exciting to be compared to a prostitute, I don't suppose. But the truth of the matter is, she was a prostitute and God had mercy on her and saved her. And spiritually speaking, you and I resemble that. We resemble those who are prostitutes because we've been intimate with other gods. He came to be our God. And we've been intimate with other gods. And the scripture tells us that that's a sense of spiritual adultery, spiritual unfaithfulness, spiritual harlotry. And so we see how we're like her. The good news is God saved her. And the good news is he saved us. Even though we were unfaithful, even though we went astray, even though we were intimate with other gods, still God came for us and he saved us. We saw how the city of Jericho can be like us as well. I mean, there's a sense in which we are closed up against God. And though God be at our very gate, God be at our very door, still we're closed up against him. And it's going to take a, a work of God to, 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 to make those walls fall. And then even we see that the way that God works is rather surprising. Uh, who would have ever thought he would have given Israel this military strategy to walk around the city once a day for six days? and then walk around the seventh day seven times, and then shout. I mean, you know, that's not going to make the books that's going to be taught in our war colleges these days of how to take a city. Uh, but yet, that was the wisdom and power of God. And who would ever thought the very Son of God would come and die? That's the wisdom and power of God. The scripture says that the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved... It's the wisdom and power of God. I have a suspicion that the Israelites walking around the city was folly to the people in Jericho. They looked and said, this is silly. No one else has ever attacked us quite like this. Uh, to them it was folly. But to Rahab, it was the wisdom and power of God. And to the Israelites, it was the wisdom and power of God that they might get that inheritance. That's why I began our service with this call to worship where God says, my thoughts aren't your thoughts, my ways aren't your ways. You have to get on board with me. Let me teach you, let me tell you, so you'll know these, these things. So I see these pictures today. I just want to present one more picture from this passage uh, as we come. Because we know from the scripture that though we're saved, if you're a believer in Christ, still there is a warfare, there's a battle that goes on. Uh, the scripture talks about this warfare that, that happens. It's within the Christian, and it's even us and the world, and it's out there as well. Uh, Martin Luther uh, talked about the enemies of our soul this way. He categorized them as the world, the flesh, and the devil. And, and the world is the system that's not submitted to the lordship of Christ. And we live in the midst of a world like that. We live in the, in the midst of a world that's not submitted to the lordship of Christ, where he, in a personal sense in people's lives, isn't ruling and reigning. They're not voluntarily submitting to him. And thus all kinds of wrong thinking can take place. All kinds of wrong behavior can take place in the midst of that. Uh, you and I both know that, many of us. We're, we're deeply a part of that before God rescued us from the midst of that. And so there's the world. And the scripture says that there's this battle between the way the world thinks and does and the way the kingdom of God thinks and does. So much so that Jesus was able to put it like this to his disciples. In John chapter 15 and verse 18, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And when he refers to the world, he means this, this system of, of, of people who are not yielded to the lordship of Christ. He says, if you, were, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so there is this hostility that, that's, that exists. And it may not be violent physically, but it's violent spiritually between Christians 
lovers of Christ and the world. It's there. And then the flesh. Still, though, we've been redeemed and filled with the Holy Spirit and all that stuff, still there is this, this sinfulness that resides within us that the Bible refers to in various ways, but one of those ways is the flesh. And Paul speaks of this flesh in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. He says, but I, walk, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not desire, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And so he says that, you know, he says, Christian, within you there is this battle that's going on. And then there's this battle that goes on between you and, and others in the flesh as well. And so you need to be aware of that spiritual struggle, battle going on. And then he says, Luther put it, the world, the flesh, and the devil, saying that, okay, there's this, this spiritual one, this spiritually evil one, Satan himself, and all of the demons that are with him, that form an unseen kingdom, if you will, that's against us as well, that's against believers in Christ as well. Again, Paul puts it, put, puts it this way in Ephesians in chapter 6. He says in verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, that is against human beings in that sense, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so you see, when I see a battle going on, in Jericho, before my very eyes, a physical one, the people of God against people who are against the people of God, my head goes to the spiritual battle that we, that we experience all the time. We experience it on the one hand within as we fight to maintain faith in our own lives and the faith, the way that Paul puts that battle to Timothy is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. He says to Timothy, he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. You see, what, what, what these enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil does is come against your faith and comes against your good conscience towards God to defile you before God. And so that's the fight, Timothy, and you've got to keep fighting it for in your own personal life. Paul puts it this way in, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 about himself, verse 7. He writes, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. He says, you know, the fight, Paul says for me, is to make sure that I keep the faith in my own life, faith in Christ, but also keep the faith, the true, living, holy faith that I don't defile that at all, that I don't diminish that at all, that I keep believing that which is true, the faith in Christ, to keep it. And he said, that's been the fight. And so the world is against us keeping faith, maintaining faith. The world's against faith in Christ. The flesh is against it. The devil is against it. And that's the spiritual battle that goes on. And it's more real than anything we might ever know. Though we can't. See it. That's why I like the Battle of Jericho. I can see that. Even though I wasn't there. Not quite that old. But I wasn't there. But in my mind's eye, I can see it. And I can smell it. And I can hear it. And then I have to transfer that to what I can't see and go, oh yes, that's what's going on. And so the question is, how do we fight that spiritual battle? What weapons do we use? Turn to 2 Corinthians in chapter 10, please. 2 Corinthians in chapter 10. And verse 3. Paul writes this. He says, Though... For though we walk in the flesh, that means just walking around, we're walking in the flesh. He doesn't have any negative connotation to the word flesh there. He's just saying, I'm walking around in my body because I'm, I'm a guy. I'm a human being. That's what we do. We walk around in the flesh. We're walking around the spirit, then you couldn't see us. Okay? So we're walking around in the flesh. That's all he means by that there. So though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. That is, we're not fighting a physical, material battle. 
We walk in the flesh. We're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your, when your obedience is complete. And so he's saying, listen, we don't... Uh, there is a warfare. It's not of the flesh. It's of the spirit. It's a, in the spiritual realm. And we have weapons to destroy strongholds. So again, you get this sense of strongholds. But not, not a, a fortress like Jericho physically, but a spiritual stronghold. What are those? He says, these spiritual strongholds are arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. People think wrongly about God. And the danger of thinking wrongly about God is that that enters into what the Bible calls our personalities, who we are, our hearts. And it's there in our hearts that we embrace and believe. And then our actions are based upon what we believe. So it says, if you have wrong thoughts about God, then you'll have wrong beliefs. And if you have wrong beliefs, that's going to lead to wrong life. And so he says, let's come against that wrong belief, those lofty opinions. But here he puts a bit of a, a spin on that. In some versions of the Bible, it talks, it's translated as arguments and pretensions. Now, a pretense is a false argument. And not only is it simply wrong, but it's arrogantly wrong. If you know a pretentious person, it's not just somebody who's just a little bit annoying. It's someone who's arrogant, who thinks they're really right and everybody else is really wrong. And that their rightness comes from within. Their rightness becomes, comes from who they are. And, 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 and the problem you see, as we saw last week with human nature since the fall of Adam, is this pretension. We think we know about God. We think we have him rightly defined. And we don't, because in our sin we're suppressing the truth about him. And so we're just living arrogantly, thinking we know about God when we really don't. And he needs to reveal himself to us and break through our pretensions so that we would really know him and know who he really is. And so Paul is saying to us that the real fight is there. The real fight is this arrogant, self-centered self-sufficient uh, understanding of who God is. That's where we have to go. And so he is going to give you weapons to deal with that because that's where the battle is being waged. And these weapons are powerful. And these are the only weapons we have. We don't have any other weapons than the ones God gives to us to deal with these things. He says, guns won't do it. Cannons won't do it. The ways of the world won't do it. One old dead guy very dead guy. Uh, Chrysostom, early church father, puts it like this. He says, by worldly weapons, he, that is Paul, by worldly weapons, he means wealth, glory, power, loquaciousness, he's being a little loquacious in this, um, cleverness, half-truths, flatteries, hypocrisies, and so on. He's saying, listen, we don't, we don't outsmart them. Paul said, the only argument I have it's Christ and him crucified. I'm no more clever than that. I don't have any clever speech. I don't have any distinct wisdom. I can only tell you about Jesus dying on the cross for your sins. That's it. Whatever, whatever argument you have, whatever idea about God you have, all I'm going to talk about is Christ and him crucified. We're not going to win this through some very clever argument. He says, the way I'm going to win this, the way I'm going to destroy that stronghold is to tell you about Jesus. To give you the truth about him. So that's all I got. I might say that nicely. I might say that in great detail. I might be able to give you a lot of information about that in a very logical pattern and all of that. But that's all I've got. Nor does he say, if you follow our way, you'll become rich. In fact, the way of Christianity is to be able to say, listen... If you follow Christ, if you don't lose it all, you may be asked to give it all. It's not about being rich. We're not going to promise you that you're going to get rich at the end of this whole deal. 
said, well, we can promise them prestige and status. That's what the world does. If you follow us, then you'll be prestigious. You'll be popular. You'll have high status. And, and, and we have to come and be honest and say, listen, if you become a Christian, uh, you're likely to be hated by the world. We can't promise you status. Well, power. Can't we promise you power? If you become a Christian, you become power in the context of our society. You say, well, if you become a Christian, you might get imprisoned. Or you might die. Not the ways of the world, but the ways of God's Spirit as He gives us these weapons. These are all the weapons we have. We have the same weapons that the apostles had. Same weapons that the early church fathers had. Same weapons that the reformers have. Same weapons that Christians throughout the generations have had. And no matter how much technology, how much media, how much of this or how much of that we add to them or whatever, still, bottom line is, these are the weapons of our warfare. Turn quickly to Ephesians in chapter 6. Those of you who know this passage know where I'm going. And I'll go there a little bit, but not as much as you think. That's not my purpose. But Ephesians in chapter 6 and verse 10. Paul puts it like this. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Now, it's amazing to me in verse 12. That Paul says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Because if you look at Paul's life, other people made his life miserable. They fought against him all the time. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. He was stoned. He was left for dead. He was starved. People did that to him. You'd think he'd say, our enemy is people. People who don't believe in Jesus. That's the enemy. Let's go get him. But he doesn't. He says there's something behind that. There's a sense in which Paul would be saying, my beef isn't with these people. And he's saying, their beef really isn't with me. He says, their beef is with Christ because my beef is with Satan. So he was able to see beyond the physical stuff that was going on and be able to see the spiritual battle in that. And he said, therefore, when we're waging war, we're not shooting at them. We're not punching them. We're not stoning them back. We're not imprisoning them back. Because that really won't help. That isn't the way to get at this. The way to get at this is the spiritual fight. And so I'm going to tell you about spiritual weapons to use against this. Now remember, when we're using spiritual weapons against physical weapons, we could get physically hurt. Right? When you say to someone, Jesus loves you, and they punch you, that hurts. Right? When Paul would give them a gospel and they'd throw stones at him, that would hurt. But he said, hurt me, because that's really not the issue. That's not what I'm concerned about. There's another thing going on here, and so I'm going to use the weapons that Christ has given to me so that I can really deal with the issue. The issue is you're thinking wrongly, Paul would say, about God. And so now I need to to bring everything to bear on that. And so here are the weapons. He says the weapons are truth and righteousness, and peace, and faith. That's the weapon, you see, that we have. Hope, that's the weapon that we have. The Word of God, that's the weapon that we have. Prayer, that's the weapon that we have. It begins with truth. Notice in verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Uh, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. Now again, if you've been through this kind of this passage before, you know that Roman soldiers wore these long sort of flowing robes and so forth. See them in the movies that way. In order to be a good fighter, somehow you have to gather up all this cloth or you'd trip. And so... Uh, you had to put a belt on. And so you'd gather it all up in a belt and tie it tight so you could move. And everything depended upon that. If you didn't have that belt on, you'd, you'd be tripping and falling over your robes. And so Paul uses that and says, now here's your belt, it's truth. 
Everything is derived from that. If you don't have the truth, then how are you ever going to, to, to come against the strongholds which are false ideas about God? So you've got to have the truth. That's our weapon. And we have it because of Christ. Not because we're smarter than they are. Not because we're more clever than they are. Not because we're more deserving than they are. But Christ is truth. And to know him is to know the truth about God. In him we see everything. Because in him the fullness of deity dwells. And so he says since we know Christ, we have truth about God. We see his righteousness, we see his holiness, we see his justice, we see his mercy, his love, and his grace, all in Jesus. So he says, get him on. You've got to know Christ. That's truth. And everything else flows from that. And then he says, you need a breastplate of righteousness. Notice how he goes on. Stand there, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, a soldier knows in those days that he's vulnerable to a spear thrust in his heart. No matter how thick his skin is, how muscular he may happen to be, a good spear with a little bit of thrust behind it will do him in every time. And so he knows to be protected by such a thing, he needs something from outside himself to cover his chest, to cover his back, so that when that spear hits it, it won't hurt him. He doesn't have it within himself. He needs it from outside. And so the apostle says, all right, here's your breastplate. You're vulnerable to the judgment of God. And you're vulnerable to the accusations of Satan. You're vulnerable to the, to the judgment of God because God is holy. And to live in his presence, you must be holy. How will you stand? How will your heart survive in the presence of God? And so he says, here's what you need to know from the truth of Christ, that you have on yourself a breastplate, something covering you, that's righteousness. Where are you going to get righteousness? Well, from Jesus. He is our righteousness. And that's the gospel. The gospel is that we're unrighteous, but Jesus clothes us in his righteousness. He puts that on us. So when God looks at us, the Father, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And so then, you see, we can withstand judgment because we stand in the presence of God, justified, declared righteous. God looks at us and says, you are holy. And when you get to heaven and God says that, don't act surprised. Because <laughs> he's looking at Christ covering you and Christ covering me. And then we're, we can withstand the accusations of Satan. When Satan comes to us and says, you're not worthy to be called a child of God, I simply say, you're right. Anything else? <laughs> we both agree on that. But I am a child of God. Why? Because I've put something on that's not me, Christ's righteousness. If I wear my own righteousness, I'm in trouble. I can't withstand. But with the righteousness of Christ on me, covering my heart, then, you see, I can stand. And then this destroys pretense and lofty arguments because the world comes to us and says, we are worthy. The world comes to us and says, we are capable. The world comes to us and says, if there really is a God, he will accept us. But there probably isn't one anyway, so we're safe. And we, covered in the righteousness of Christ, have as our weapon, if you will, to say, no, I must have the righteousness of Christ. And I've spent a lot of time talking with scientists and philosophers, really smart people, smarter than me. And when I talk to smart people who are Christians, I love to ask them, what brought you to faith? And I have to be honest with you, almost never, does that really smart person say it was some kind of argument that brought them into the kingdom? Almost always, that really smart person said, I realized my sin, and I was vulnerable to the judgment of God, and I needed righteousness, and Christ gave it to me. And then they often say, now i got a bunch of stuff to work out, but the truth of the matter is that I know 
And that's why I'm a Christian. And they go, whew. Because I can't argue with them oftentimes in their area of discipline. I can't know what they know about this and that. But I can relate to them about their sin. And I can relate to them about their need for righteousness. And I can relate to them about the sufficiency of Christ's righteousness. That's all I've got. All right? So Paul says, all right, truth, knowing the truth of Jesus, you know your need for righteousness and the righteousness that is in him. And then he says, I want you to put the gospel of peace on your feet. That's your shoes. And isn't it interesting in the midst of hostility that we have the solution? We have peace. There's this gospel, this good news of peace. Because again, the problem isn't between you and me. It's not between Paul and those people throwing stones at him. It's between us and God. And Paul would say, all right, I, I know you're mad at me. But, but, but if you could just, you know, aim badly for just a minute and let me talk. I want to tell you about the real hostility that exists. It exists in the context of your own heart and the relationship with God. And how Christ has solved all of that. So he says, you see, that's, that's the weapon that we have. It's not very dramatic, it seems. It doesn't seem very spectacular, you know. But it's simply the truth. So Paul says, that's the gospel of peace. And he said, there are times when people will come to you and, and ask you about the hope that's in you. Be prepared. Have these shoes ready to go and to tell them this very, this very truth. Because you see, that's our weapon against unbelief. Is to share with people, to tell people the gospel of Christ. That's all we got. And then he goes on to say after that, he said, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. We're saved by grace through faith. It isn't anything that we've done. It's a gift of God. And so the shield, the thing that, that we hold up in front of us to protect is belief in Jesus. And everything that comes our way, we remind ourselves of the cross and the work of Christ. Because there we see the wisdom of God. Who else could have saved us like that? There we see the power of God. Who else can change our hearts? There we see the, the very just, justice of God. Because God isn't overlooking sin, he's dealing with it. But there we see the very grace and love of God because he's dealing with it upon Jesus. And we are Saved, he being our substitute. And so, he says, by faith, everything. Don't look to yourself. Look to Christ, and that will deflect everything. And then he goes on to say, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. Now, in First Thessalonians, in chapter 4, Paul speaks of the helmet of salvation, and he said, this is your hope. See, what we have to be thinking about is salvation. And what does that mean? It means that we have hope. It means that there's an inheritance that's to come that we can't forget about. Because if we forget about it, then life will be overwhelming. Everything will be huge. Romans in chapter 8, in verse 18, Paul puts it like this. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time... Now please hear this in the context of Paul's life. Remember, he was a man who suffered. I believe if you would take a peek at Paul as he's writing this, and if you would raise his shirt, you would see the whipping marks on his back. I'm sure he had dents in his head from rocks. I'm sure he was feeble because of, of the things that people did to him and the experiences of his life. He knows about suffering. And I know that many of us know about suffering in various ways. But understand this in the context of his life. He said, I've considered that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And he's saying, all right, this is hard, but this isn't forever. He said, I've done the math and I've compared this moment with all of eternity. And so I can exist in this moment because I know it won't always be like this. A day really is coming. And there is no crying, and there is no pain, and there is no injustice, and there is no any of that. But everything will reflect Christ. Second Corinthians in chapter 4, he puts it like this, verse 16. He says, So we do not lose hearts, though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day, for this slight momentary affliction. Now that's an unbelievable expression. That would be like sitting with Job 
after months of boils on his body and feeling horrible and all of that, for him to say this slight momentary affliction. See, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So the way that we do battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil when it comes against us is this. We think about what's to come. And we realize that this moment is worth it. No matter what we're going through. That this moment is worth it. Because it's, comparing, it's preparing for us, as he puts it, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are unseen are transient, but the things, I'm sorry, but the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So again, he's looking into this eternal place and he's saying, it really is worth it. And then he comes to this. He says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. So he's saying, okay, you got all this truth. you got this truth about righteousness. You've got this truth about the gospel of peace. You've got this truth about faith. You've got this truth about hope. Now I want you to take all of that, because all of it comes from the word of God. It's all there. And I want you to pick that up, and I want you to take it, and I want you to, to use it in your own heart to maintain faith. To take that truth, which is in the Word of God, about righteousness, and about peace, and about hope, and about faith. And I want you to use it all the time. Don't let this Word depart from your mouth. May it always be in your speech. Don't let it fall from your your head. Be meditating on it all the time. As he says to Joshua. Because this is the Word of God. And this is how you'll win. And in conversation with others, unbelievers, make sure your speech is sprinkled with truth. You don't have to quote Bible verses at them in King James. But make sure as you're talking to them about life and about your life and about theirs, that you're able to reflect with them upon the gospel in some way. Truth is, they may not get it. They may not know that's what you're doing. That's what's so fun about being Christian. Sometimes you lay this stuff in there and they go home and they repeat it. You go, ha, ha, gotcha. But... You, you talk to them about these things subtly, overtly, as God gives opportunity, you see. And then he says, I want you to take up the sword of the Spirit. And I don't think there should be a comma in that sentence, but there is in most English translations. But take up the sword of the Spirit praying. All right? Don't take a breath there. Just take up the sword of the Spirit praying in the Spirit. It's, it, the Word of God is the Word of the Spirit of God. He's the one who did it. He's the one who breathed it out. And our praying is in the Spirit. And so we're praying consistent with the Word of God. What does that mean? It means when you take up the Word of God, you pray, oh God, make this work. God, make this work in somebody's life. You know, when you're sharing your faith with somebody, what do you do? You tell them about Jesus. Is that it? No. You pray. God, I've taken up your Word. Please bear fruit in their life. So Paul says, listen, these weapons are powerful, I want you to know. They really do break down strongholds. Now here's my point today. I went through all of that to say this. There are times in my life, and I think in yours too, when I see the enemy either in my own heart or in the world, and I feel like all I'm doing is marching around it day after day, after day. Trumpets might be going off, but I keep looking at those walls and they look as thick and as tall today as they did yesterday. And I'm going through all the same stuff. In my own life, a temptation comes, I know what to do. I take the truth of God and I take the truth of Christ and I, I read the scripture and I claim the scripture's truth in my own life. And I pray that God would cause this to be real in my own life. And I'm 54 years old. And some days I don't fall for that temptation. And other days I do. 
And even if I don't, it's back this afternoon or it's back tomorrow noon or whenever. And I feel like sometimes I've already done this and yet I'm walking around. People come to me, they come to you with difficulties in life. And so we go to the scripture, we know the truth, and we remind ourselves that God is sovereign and that God is wise and that God is loving and that God is good. And we take some wisdom from the scripture, we put together a plan that we think is reasonable and how to walk this through and maintain faith and all of that and, and deal with this particular situation and, and, and we pray that, that it would work and that God would do his work and, and we wake up the next day and the problem's still there. And so we wake up the next day and feel like we're just walking around the walls again. Right? We know people who don't know Jesus and so we go to them and we share the faith with them when we live our life in such a way that will help them see the gospel lived out. We trust and we pray and we, we take up the word of God praying. We pray that God will save them and do what he did for us and change our hearts and, and, and transform them, enable them to receive the gospel and, and all of that. And we wake up the next day and we talk to them and still they don't believe. And I feel like, well, another trip around, I guess. You know, I don't know what the deal is. Uh, we look at the world and all of the difficulties in the world. And there's war and there's injustice and there's poverty. And there's all sorts of issues and problems. And we read the newspapers and we find out that the best plan we have is more education or more technology or, or a cleverer plan or a better marketing strategy or something. But yet we realize this isn't getting at the heart of it. And so we give money and we send out missionaries and we do work in various parts of the world and various parts of cities and all that sorts of thing, even in our communities. And we tell people about Jesus and we pray and we try to live out the gospel in front of them and provide for them and show them the, what the kingdom looks like. We, we give money so that they can see the generosity of God and we give our lives so they can see the care of God and all those kinds of things. We wake up the next day and all those problems still exist and we feel like, well, I feel like I'm walking around the wall one more time. Now I wonder how those Israelites sustained the walk every day for six days and then seven times the seventh day. You know, part of me, on a, on a bad day, I think they must be like me, thinking, what are we doing this for? You know, all it took to get through the river of Jordan was for the priests to put their feet in the river, and it stopped. I bet it's their fault. I mean, they're blowing these trumpets. I bet they're playing the wrong tune. Something uh, is, is wrong here. Uh, uh, it can't be me. It's got to be them. So, so I'm assuming that my leaders are just leading me astray one more time. If only they'd get their act together, my life uh, would be a lot easier. And so we take another trip around, and the walls seem to be as strong as they were the time before. And I wonder what's going on with all of this. And then I remember how they walked. First there was the armed guard, and then there were the trumpets blown by the priests, and then there was this box, the Ark of the Covenant, the promises of God, the presence of God, the power of God right there. And I think what we need to do, dare I say, is keep our eyes on Jesus. Could I say? Keep our eyes on Jesus, the, Jesus, the embodiment of the Ark of the Covenant, there in him. The promises of God. There in Him is the power of God. There in Him is the very presence of God. And, and, and perhaps what they were able to do is look at the Ark of the Covenant and look at the wall and think, that's a little box. That's a big wall. Man, I feel sorry for that wall. Because they knew what was in the box better. They knew what the box represented. The very presence of God. And so each day, perhaps it wasn't a drudgery for them. Each day, perhaps it was a walk of faith to say, I know this really looks silly to the people in Jericho, but this is what God said to do. Therefore, I'm going to trust it really is going to work. And that's the word, I think, for us. It may look like we're always at a disadvantage. It may look like we really haven't got anything very, very great here. Because all we can do is tell people about Jesus, live our lives in such a way that shows him, and pray. And he says, that'll work. I read this morning as our call to worship from Isaiah, 
chapter 55, begin with verse 6, said, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. He's saying, come on, come to me, and I'll forgive your sins, you'll be mine. And then verse 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That fit the people of Israel as they walked around Jericho going, I don't think this makes a very good plan, God. God said, trust me. I know it doesn't look like it to you, but trust me. And then he goes on to say, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. He's saying, listen, my word is powerful. And so when you use these weapons that are derived from the word of God, he says, they're powerful. And here's what's going to happen. Verse 12. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And the mountains and the hills before you shall spring forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. He's saying this will work because what I've purposed in my word is for my people to have joy. What I purpose for my word with with my word is for my people to have peace. What I purpose with my word is that the whole world will be such a place for them that it will all sing my praise. What I purpose for my word is that God says it will make a name for me. And it will. It will. It may feel like to us we're just spinning our wheels. But we're not. Not when we grab a hold of the truth. Not when we're clothed with righteousness. Not when we understand the gospel of peace. Not when we live by faith. Not when we hope for the salvation that's been promised to us by God. Not when we pick up the sword of the Spirit and apply it in our own lives. Not when we pray. God will make a name for himself. And we will go out in joy. Do you ever wonder what your life would have been like if you had been there the day that Jesus was crucified? I don't know exactly how I would have responded, but assuming that I wasn't one of the ones crucifying him, if I could put myself in the life of one of Jesus' disciples, then I would say, if I were like the other disciples on that day, I would have been confused and discouraged. I would have thought my whole world had just crashed down around me. I would have wondered, how could this ever be helpful? How could this ever accomplish the purposes of God? We know that because the next day, Peter and his buddies went fishing. They went back to their old life. It was like, Jesus is gone. What do we do? Huh, let's fish. A uh, bunch of guys. But that's how they made their living. They went back to their old life. They went back fishing. We catch a glimpse of this on a particular day. Luke did his research, found a story for us, plugged it in about two people on the road, on a road to Emmaus. And the irony of this whole situation is that Jesus showed up to walk with them. And they were discouraged. Their whole life had come crashing in uh, before them because Jesus had been killed and they just couldn't get it. And you wonder, why couldn't they get it? Didn't they get the Passover lamb? Didn't they get the sacrificial system? Uh, didn't they get Isaiah? <laughs> chapter 7, chapter 11, chapter 53? Uh, no. It just didn't look like anything they could even imagine that the Lord of glory would be killed. And you get the sense that God was watching this little incident take place and announced in heaven, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And the angels just sort of answered and said, obviously, you know, yeah, duh, whew. clearly. But in that moment, when the Lord of glory 
died, we came to life. His ways aren't our ways. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. It looks folly, but it's the wisdom and power of God. There are times when us speaking the word of God, there are times when us praying, there are times when we're thinking about the righteousness of Christ on us that we feel like we're just spinning our wheels, but we're not. It's the wisdom power of God. We know that because we see this truth in Christ the night that he was betrayed. He took bread and after giving thanks he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said this is my body which is given for you. And then he took the cup and again to them he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And one of the things that I think is helpful for us to remember is this. We would have never thought of this. We would have never come up with this way. And we could never have carried it off. Because none of us could die for the other. And none of us would die for the other. But this is God's wisdom. And His power. And we are to trust Let's pray. Father in heaven, pray for me and for us. We would not become discouraged, but we would take up all the weapons that you give us, these spiritual ones, to fight, and we would stand and trust that in taking them up that you will be victorious. And a day will come when we'll see walls fall. Father, we pray that you would take this bread, this juice, you would set it apart that we really would see Jesus today in fellowship with him, meet with him, receive from him, feed upon him by faith. Father, that we would know him, that our faith would increase and mature, so much so that we would have faith to continue to walk circles upon circles upon circles, taking up every weapon that you give us, in every way that you give us to fight the spiritual fight. And we would never take our eyes off Jesus. Father, be with us now. Jesus, meet with us here. In Christ's name. Amen.